Okay, good morning, everybody. The topic this morning is you're a match. Is there an obligation to donate bone marrow? Obviously, it's a topic that touches close to home, and therefore I might be somewhat biased in my view. But we'll try to go through the sources. I'd like to first start off by getting a little bit of a background into what exactly it means to donate bone marrow. So I have here a sheet from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Ari, do you mind reading for us just the first few paragraphs, giving us a basic overview? happens during bone marrow donation. Bone marrow donation is a surgical procedure that takes place in an operating room. The donation will be scheduled at a hospital that partners with the with Be The Match slash National Marrow Don Marrow <laughs> Donor Program. In some cases the hospital may be near your home, in other cases you may be asked to travel. Travel and other donation related expenses are covered. Your representative from the be the match registry will guide you through the process and be available the day of your bone marrow donation. Obviously there are many different organizations, this is one particular, Be the Match, but the same basic idea we'll see applies to all of these organizations. Let's go through. So what happens? Give us the basic rundown, yeah. Hospital stay. You will arrive at the hospital outpatient facility on the day of the donation. You will stay in the hospital usually from early morning to late afternoon through some hospitals, though some hospitals routinely plan for an overnight hospital stay. Anesthesia. You will be given anesthesia to block the pain during the marrow donation. If general anesthesia is used, you will be unconscious during the donation. If you receive regional anesthesia, either spinal or epidural, medication will block sensation in the affected area, but you will remain aware of your surroundings. General anesthesia is used for about 96% about of NMDP marrow donors. The average time of anesthesia is less than two hours. Donation. During the bone marrow donation, you will be lying on your stomach. While the donation varies slightly from hospital to hospital, generally the doctors use special hollow needles to withdraw liquid marrow where blood-forming cells are made from both sides of the back of the pelvic bone through several typical one to, typically one to four small incisions. The incisions are less than one-fourth inch long and do not require stitches. <coughs> Recovery. Hospital staff will watch you closely until the anesthesia wears off and continue to monitor your condition afterwards. Most donors go home the same day or the next morning. After you leave the hospital, a representative from the Be The Match registry will contact you on a regular basis to ask about your physical condition and any side effects you are experiencing. Most donors are back to the normal routine within several days. And the question everyone asks is... Does it hurt like heck? Are there, well, does it hurt and are there risks involved? So, take a look at the back here. The first section speaks about the potential side effects. And there may be back or hip pain, fatigue, muscle pain, headache. Um, some say more painful, some say less painful. Are there any major risks, though, involved? Let's take a look here at that bottom paragraph. Start from the National Marrow Donor Program. The National Marrow Donor Program wants to assure donor safety, but no medical procedure is risk free. The majority, more than 98.5%, of marrow donors feel completely recovered within a few weeks. A small percentage, 2.4%, of donors experience a condition 
experiencing a serious complication due to anesthesia or damage to bone, nerve, or muscle in their hip region. Sorry, I was thrown off by the fact that the percentages don't match 100. Right, it's not, it's, it's not a... <laughs> Sorry. It's, it's just my, sorry. <laughs> I think the overwhelming number is the 98.5% of people will be totally fine in a few days or at the most a few weeks. Let's keep that number in mind. The risk of side effects of anesthesia during bone marrow donation is similar to that during other surgical procedures. Meaning any surgical procedure will always have the risk. Whenever you go under, there obviously are, are risks involved. Okay. Serious side effects of anesthesia are rare. Common side effects of general anesthesia include sore throat, caused by the breathing tube, or mild nausea and vomiting. Common side effects of regional anesthesia are a decrease in blood pressure and a headache after the procedure. All right. The NMDPO. So we have here just a little bit of a picture of what donating bone marrow is. You know, they mentioned that taking the bone marrow from two places in the lower back. You know, Reva Light, she has two little scars on her back, and she's very proud of those scars. You know, she realizes that through this little procedure, she was able to give her brother healthy bone marrow. So 98.5% of all people who donate bone marrow come out totally fine. And of course, you have those risks involved with any surgical procedure. That's pretty much what we're hearing. Are there major side effects? The answer seems to be no. Could you have a sore throat? Could you have some back pain, some fatigue? Yeah. What I like to analyze is, is therefore, based on the way we do bone marrow transplants now, would there be an obligation to give bone marrow if you are indeed a match? So the first step is, how do I know if I'm a match? Is there an obligation to join the registry? Yes, yes, so let's start with that. Joining the registry, which is basically just a swab of your mouth, that's a of gumbar. Everyone should do that. Because there's no reason not to. There's no pain involved. There's no side effects. There's no risks. You should have your name there. There are millions and millions of people. And uh, there's no reason why my name shouldn't be in the registry. The question I want to address is, if you're called upon to be the match, do I have to? Is it a nice thing to do? Is it something I could just choose if I'm in the mood? And that's obviously a major halacha question. A little bit of background, but before the background, Elisa. Yes? I just want to point something out that 2.5% is all, it sounds like a low number, I think is actually higher than, like, I remember I had to have knee surgery. When I was looking at the odds between two different procedures, it was, you were talking about in the thousands or tens of thousands percents, not two, per, that's two out of every 100 Tens of thousands percent that what? Of, that there will be a complication. Any complication? Um, like, like major uh, nerve, muscle, yeah, like that kind of thing. Besides, besides for anesthesia, just um, the, the other kinds of complications. Many complications based on the procedure itself. Right. Um, so it, it is higher I just wanna, like, make than your, than your normal that, surgical that is, procedure. That, 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 that's, 
Just realize that that's two out of every 100 people have some major complication. Anytime you, you open the skin and, uh, and anytime you use anesthesia, there's, there's an underlying risk that I think would be higher than a very, very, you know, than a, than a fraction, a small fraction of the <coughs> I think related possibly to any specific procedure, there could be a very reliable procedure, but and, and these are a good example of tend to be very, very uh, routine surgeries, but there's just a general risk anytime you break skin that, that there could be infection in other countries. And ultimately, we have to see the numbers, and okay. we could always compare the trust. Um, going into something knowing that there's a 2% chance that there could be serious complications. It doesn't mean it's a clear, you know, free ride. Right. I'm saying that's just not. It's not negligible. Okay. It's it's low, but not not. I wouldn't say that that's negligible. Okay. Agreed. A little bit of background in general. 1956 was the first successful bone marrow transplant. 1956, and they were experimenting with this for a while. Originally, they were trying to give bone marrow through the mouth, and that did not work. In 1956, they were able to have uh, a sibling for a bone marrow transplant. It was more than 10 years later, in 1968, they were able to do a bone marrow transplant for a non-cancer patient. It was more of a bone marrow failure situation. And then not until 1973 were they able to do a bone marrow transplant with someone who was not related to you. That's been the evolution, and Baruch Hashem, we know as, as modern medicine becomes more advanced, it becomes more routine, and, and they're doing these things every day across the world. Can, can we define for a second, what does success mean for a bone marrow transplant? Does that mean a person is uh, successfully produced now, and therefore they live forever? So I'm not sure what happened in 1956. When it says that it worked, does that mean it worked and the patient went on to live until he was 90? Did he live a few more years? I'm not sure. You know, if this requires more research. Is that ever part of the cheshman? Like how, what it's going to do for the person? Yeah, yeah, that, that's a huge part of the cheshman. There's actually a famous chuva for Mimosha. It goes back to like 1967, 1968, where he speaks about heart transplants. And I want to save that chuva for our discussion on organ transplants, or organ donation, when we get there. But based on the, the medical situation in the late 60s, Ramosha felt that to accept a heart transplant is usser. Because first of all, you're killing the person from whom you're harvesting the heart. They're not officially dead, halachically, and even according to many medical evaluations of the time of death, they're probably not officially dead, so that's Ritzicha. And you're also killing the recipient of the heart, because Ramosha writes in 1968, it doesn't work. And if you were to leave that person in their condition with a poor heart, they could live for another 5, 10, 15 years. They might keep on going, and now you're killing them. Now, obviously, Bisman Hazeh, things are radically different. <coughs> so, a little background. Um, to this discussion. We have many chiyuvim in the Torah that speak about being careful with our health and not endangering ourselves. tells us that we have to be careful, we can't do things that could bring sakana. 
There's an Isser of hurting oneself. We spoke about this uh, parenthetically when we had our tattoo conversation. There's an Isser that's derived from the end of Parshas Noach, Aches Dimchem Lanafsha Seichem Edrosh. That Hashem says, if you kill yourself, I will hold you responsible. <coughs> that's how the Gemara interprets that Pasuk. So we see from there, there's an Issa derise of suicide. And because of an Issa derise of suicide, putting oneself in a situation where that could lead to death, that should be a violation of, of as Dimchem Lanavsho Seichem Edrosh. We have the Gemara in Shabbos that tells us, Le'olam al yamod odem b'makom sekana, lomer she'osin lo'nes. A person should not put himself in a situation where it's a risk to his life. He should not be sure that a nace will happen. And if a nace does happen, then menakin lom b'zuchiyosav. It takes away from his chusim, like we spoke about in Shabbos with Shmuel. And there's an amazing berhagola. We quoted this before. The very goal at the very end of Choshen Mishpat, usually his job is just to tell you where the halacha and the Shulchan Aruch is found in Shas. Moshe Rivkish was one of the, the great Pekiyim of his time in the 1500s. And they approached him. They said, listen, Baruch Hashem, we have the Shulchan Aruch, we have the Ramah, but they don't quote the Gemaras, the sources of the halacha. So can you take it upon yourself to show where all of their psakim come from. If it's from a Gemara, it's from a Rishon. And he did so. That's the Ber Hagola. But rarely does he say more than Ksubis daf yud zayin amad beis. Beya daf gimbal amad alef. That's all he usually says. At the very end of Choshen Mishpat, where he speaks about the halacha of being careful with one's life and not doing things that are dangerous, he says, because... The rationale is that Kodesh Baruch Hu gave us a matana. We have this amazing gift called Chayim. <laughs> we could live, we could breathe, we could function, and we have the opportunity for nitzchiyas, we could do mitzvos. So doing things that are risky, it's showing HaKadosh Baruch Hu and it's showing yourself that you don't really care that much about life. You're not machshavit. That's a terrible chayt. When it comes to the issue of risking one's life for the sake of a mitzvah, so we know the Pasuk, we've quoted this before as well, in Acharei Mos, it says, B'chai Bahem, that you should live by the mitzvahs, and the Gemara and Sanhedrin derives from here, V'lo Shiyamus Bahem, you should live by them, you should not die by them, meaning to say, <coughs> you're not allowed to risk your life in order to perform a mitzvah. So one classic example is fasting on Yom Kippur. The doctors tell you, you're too weak, it's not healthy, it could bring sakanastafashos. If you were to choose to fast on Yom Kippur, then you're in violation of Bechai Behem. And eating on Yom Kippur, or listening to the doctor's orders, that would be a kiyum, that would be a fulfillment of the mitzvah of Bechai Behem. I'm living through the Torah, I'm not dying by it. It's a famous story with Rabbi Yisrael Salanter. It was uh, during the cholera plague. And doctors were saying that if people are fasting and they're weak, they're more prone to, to catch the epidemic. So he was in one of the biggest shuls there. I think it was in Vilna. And he was not the rub of the shul. But after Kol Nidre, Yom Kippur night, 
he stood up, he took out a little kos, filled it up with wine, and had some mazonos, and he made kiddush in front of the entire shul, and he had mazonos and the grape juice of the wine. That was his way of saying, there's a chiv gomer to eat Yom Kippur, don't wait till tomorrow when you're too tired, eat right now. Happens to be, not everyone agreed to that psaac, and that was somewhat a source of friction. <clears throat> Another example is eating to stay alive. If the only food I have available to me is tray food, so then there's a mitzvah, eat the tray food. Do you make a bracha on tray food? Yes. So usually any food that's usher, like the Shulchan Aruch says in Kuftzah Bivav, it's also levarech, I love, you can't make a bracha. However, if you're eating the food to keep yourself alive, then you do make a bracha. I want to share with you an amazing... What? Yeah? So there's a whole discussion here and there about what kind of food am I allowed to eat if I'm a chola, if it's Esther is it Deraisa. But the bottom line is, if it's the right thing to do, then you make a bracha. Even if it's for, but normally we don't make a medicine. We don't make a medicine because that's not really food. But if you're eating regular food, even though you're only doing it for a food, the Gemara Bracha says that I might not be you know, in the mood right now to eat anything. But if I'm eating something to make myself feel better, even though I'm not doing it for the pleasure, as long as I'm getting pleasure from the food, you make a bracha. And if the food is non-kosher, but it's the right thing to do, to eat it, then you make a bracha. As long as you're getting some hana, you're enjoying it to some degree, you would make a bracha. So, so to think I said, that example that you gave yesterday that somebody puts in a very heavy concentration of coffee in the morning and he just mixes it a little bit of water, but he doesn't really like coffee, but he just wants to get the caffeine kick and he wants to drink that. So would you make a bracha on that? Something like that, you probably would not make a bracha. There's a whole discussion in the postgame whether or not you would make a bracha on whiskey. I don't like the way it tastes. I think it's disgusting. So while you're drinking it, well, I like the result. <laughs> Do you make a bracha on that? The Pashup shot from the Gemara is no. This is all based on Hanaz Groen. I want to read to you, this is a letter that was found from uh, Bergen-Belsen, the concentration camp. This was composed by Rabbi Zachar Davis. This is in the Yad Vashem Museum. This is a tefillah that he composed before eating chametz on Pesach. Livnei Achilles chametz yomer bekavanas halei. Before eating chametz, say this bekavanas halei with intention. Avinu shebeshemayim. Hashem, it's known and it's, it's revealed before you that our only desire is to celebrate the Yontif of Pesach through the eating of Matzah and to refrain from eating Chomets. Ach, alzos davali beinu but to our great despair, the Shibud has prevented us from doing so. 
v'sekonis nefashos, and we find ourselves in mortal danger. And therefore, we are muchan umazuman l'kayim mitzvosecha v'chai behem behem. We are ready to be mekayim, your mitzvah of living through the mitzvos. And to also be careful in your instructions to guard ourselves, to be careful with our lives. Therefore we daven to you, that you should keep us alive and you should sustain us and then redeem us as soon as possible. To be able to keep your mitzvahs, Amen. That's the mitzvah of Vachai Bahim. Amazing, no? Amazing Nusach. And it's both an essay and a Lusach. Meaning, could it... well, the way it's, it's stated in the Torah, Vachai Bahim, we derive from there, Veloshi Yomus Bahim. If you're putting yourself in danger, then you're in violation of that essay. So, in order to do a mitzvah, we cannot risk our lives. We know there are the three exceptions where we say, Yeharag vel yavor, better to die than to do the iser. But besides those three exceptions of murder, immoral relationships, or idolatry, everything else we say, you cannot risk your life. However, the question is like this. We also have a different chiyuv, as we find in Parshish Kedoshim, the Gemara explains, what does it mean, don't stand by the blood of your friend? If your friend is in mortal danger, and he's being swept away by the river, and you could jump in and save him, or bandits are approaching and you could somehow intervene, then you're mechuyiv to do so. You have to save someone's life. So we have v'chai Baham, don't risk your life even to do a mitzvah. And we have losam al-dam which tells us you have to save someone else's life. So the question is, if by trying to save your life, I'm endangering my life, what do I do? Do we say v'chai Baham, you can't do it? Or do you say losam al-dam you have to help the guy out? That's the conflict we have to address. A quick peek here in the first tshuva of Asher Weiss. <coughs> he says, <laughs> This issue of risking one's life to save others, <laughs> This is a massive discussion, this is a machlokus amongst the poskim at the end of Choshen Mishpat. The base Yosef Hevi Shom, as Shitas Yerushalmi, the Beis Yosef brings from the Yerushalmi, that if the, the house is on fire, and I know if I do nothing, the person on the second floor will die, I'm allowed to, and more than I'm allowed to, but the Yerushalmi says, you're obligated to risk your life to try to save your friends. Ah, however, the Beis Yosef, when he wrote the Shulchan Aruch, he did not quote this halacha of the Yerushalmi, and there's a big discussion as to why not. The Sma, one of the great commentators on the Shulchan Aruch, he writes, the Be'emes ein daito kein halacha, the Beis Yosef did not feel this to be true halacha lemaisa, and therefore he did not quote this opinion in the Shulchan Aruch. 
But we see it's not simple. Yerushalmi seems to say you're obligated to risk your life to save your fellow. But yet we definitely have the Shulchan Aruch that does not quote that halacha. And according to the Sma, the reason is because we don't pass in that way. So even if you'll tell me we don't pass in like the Yerushalmi, that you're not obligated to risk your life to save someone else's life, the question is, am I allowed to risk my life? Or do we say, no, you can't risk your life for any mitzvah. So he quotes from the Sman, Hemek She'ela, and the Tveris Yisrael, and many others. Amnam HaRidvaz, there's a famous tshuva that's always quoted in this topic of the Ridvaz. He writes, the Chassid Shotahu, if you risk your life to save someone else, you're a foolish, righteous person. It's Chassid Shotah. It sounds like he's saying you should not do it. However, he says, The advice, though, gives us guidelines. He says, this question is based on what level of sakana are we talking about? Right? If it's more likely when you risk your life, you'll come out unscathed, you'll come out okay, so then, midas chasidus, that's a righteous thing to do. So he's not saying like the Yerushalmi, you're chayiv to do it, but then it's a praiseworthy thing to do. If though the odds are, are slim that you're going to make that alive by trying to save your friend, then aser lowly is talking, and then it would be aser to risk your life. Says Rav Asher Weiss, Based on this discussion, I've ruled in the past regarding donating a kidney or donating bone marrow. That although there may not be an obligation, it is still a righteous thing to do. That the people in the, in the mishpacha, or close friends, could donate either a kidney or the bone marrow to save their relative. So based on the Ridvaz, Rav Asher Weiss is saying, if you're donating a kidney or you're donating bone marrow, in both cases you could argue it's definitely not sakana nota. It's not more likely you're going to die from donating this, right? likely you'll be fine. So then according to the Ritvaz, he would say, Midas Chasidus. But do you have to? No, we don't pass like the Yerushalmi, but it's a Midas Chasidus. It's a nice thing to do. Now, this analogy between donating a kidney and donating bone marrow, Lachara, is very hard to understand. Because those two things should be viewed very differently. Donating a kidney is much more invasive. You know, it's, that, that's a real... You can't say it's a sakana to the point where it's aser. It's not aser. It's a midas chasidus. But to put that in the same category as donating bone marrow, at least the way it's done, is, is, is hard to say. And I'm not sure he means to equate them. But I think he's saying in general, in these types of procedures, you could argue that it's midas chasidus, but you don't have to. So I definitely hear how donating a kidney is, is, is a much more complicated discussion than bone marrow. 
Um, but yet many people do it. Many people seem to be fairly healthy, right? That was the famous story with Rechaim Kanievsky. Someone was thinking about donating his kidney, so he wrote a letter to Rechaim. He says, I don't get it. If it's really true what the doctors are saying, that you only need one kidney to live, so why don't Hashem give us two? So Rechaim wrote back, Poshet, one is for you, and one is to be Matzel Chavercha. <laughs> one is to save your friend. Okay, so that's Rav Asher Weiss. I wanted to take a look here at Ramosha, who gives us a little bit more of an in-depth approach in, in this sugya. Ramosha is addressing the same question as, am I allowed to or do I have to risk my life to try to save somebody else? We'll just read some of the underlying parts together. So the question is, if by cutting off a limb, theoretically, could save someone's life, would you have to do that? So like we spoke about last week, how much do I have to give up in order to not violate an Isser Torah? In order to not violate an Isser? Everything. Everything I have. Now here I have a positive mitzvah of Losam al-Dam um, you could argue that, the way Ramosha says it, the That's a love. It's not an essay. It's a love. That you have to give up all of your money in order not to transgress this love. So if you have to give up your money, perhaps giving up a limb is the same category. You have to give that up, not to be over the Isser. On the other hand, you could argue, that giving a limb is more severe, and the Torah does not require that. So he quotes in the Ritvaz, the Ritvaz says, because it's not so clear, we're mekel, and we don't say you have to give a limb in order to save someone's life. That's different than giving all your money. Um, he says, We have no indication that the lav of Losam al-Dam should be any more severe than other lavin in the Torah. And if other lavin, we have the general principle, you have to give up all your money, but we assume you don't have to give up part of your body, so the same thing is true when it comes to the lav of Losam al-Dam Riecha. Lafi Tam Shukasafti, says Ramosha in the very bottom, the lav of Losam al-Dam hu bedin kol and assuming that this lav is in the same category as all of the lavin. Ein l'chayiv l'odem l'kanes b'sofik sakana l'hatzelas chavero b'vaday sakana. You could argue that you would not be chayiv to enter into something that's dangerous, that's a risk to your life, in order to save your friend. T'halinotzel me'averos kol alavin, v'aday l'orak she'en u'tzarech. When it comes to generally don't eat treif, don't break Shabbos, don't eat on Yom Kippur, but there, it's also to put yourself in a situation where by not eating on Yom Kippur, I'm endangering myself. So if you're telling me that the love of Losam al-Dam is the same as every other love, so just like I can't fast on Yom Kippur, I can't save my friend, you could argue, if it's endangering my life. What's the difference? Ramosha, though, says, and this is the bold underlined, 
He says it's logical there should be a distinction between and other prohibitions. He says, by other prohibitions, dictates that you're not allowed to put yourself in danger to be Makaim the mitzvah. But in order to save your friend's life, you would be allowed to enter into a suffolk, you'd be allowed to risk your life. Because here it's not just about keeping Shabbos or not eating treif or fasting on Yom Kippur. In all those cases, we have a logic your life takes precedence. Better to stay alive than to keep Shabbos. Better to stay alive than to avoid eating treif. But if I'm risking my life to save his life, so then Ramosha says I'd be allowed to do so. So the psak of Ramosha is if something's a real sakanas nefashos, unlike the Yerushalmi, you would not have to risk your life, but you'd be allowed to do so, and very likely it's in the category of midas chasidus. Any questions so far? Others argue on Ramosha that Tzitzeliezer holds that just like you can't risk your life to keep Shabbos, you can't risk your life to save someone else's life. But even the Tzitzeliezer has a caveat. He says, if your job is to save lives, then you would be mechuyiv to do so even at the risk of your own life. For example, if you work for Hatzolo, if you're a doctor, I'm putting myself in a situation where this is my responsibility. Then, says Revaldenberg, it's a whole different shayla, it's a whole different category. It's similar to the, the marshal. If, if you're in the milchama, there's no heter of pikuach nefesh in war. The, the mitzvah is milchama, and part of milchama is, it, it's the kanas nefashos. So if I'm, I'm a doctor, or I'm in the front lines, and my goal is to save other people. I'm a fireman. I can't say, well, I'm not going to run into the building because, you know what, it's somewhat dangerous. That's your job. You signed up for this. What if there are multiple lives involved? Meaning that, is there more of a reason to risk one's life if I could be saving three or four people? So likely that does play a role. You know, usually we don't look at numbers when it comes to the value of life, but there are situations. But there's a famous case of the Chazanish, where he has the. Um, I mean, this, this is a whole massive discussion. But he says, let's say you're in the IDF, and someone throws a grenade, and it's coming into your group. You're you're in a group of fifteen or twenty soldiers, and usually after someone. <coughs> pulls the pin, you have about four seconds, I think, until it explodes. And you're talented enough that you could jump up and deflect the grenade, but you know that by doing so, I'll be saving these 15, 20 people, but there's two people over there that will be killed. If I did nothing, they'll stay alive. So usually we say, you can't kill someone to save another person. I can't kill one person to save 50 people. Says the Chazanish, this is not a Maisa Ritzicha. You're not doing an action of killing. You're doing a Maisa Hatzala. 
I'm doing an action of saving. And because I'm not actually killing, then numbers do play a role. Much larger discussion. What about you jumping on Oh, so so that, that's part of this question, which is, even if you'll tell me, like Ramosha says, I'm allowed to risk my life to save someone else's life, can I take a bullet for you? Am I allowed to give my life for someone else's life? The Pashib shot would seem to be, generally, no. Is I can't choose to take my life versus his life. Now, there could be exceptions to that rule, and that rule is debated. Yeah, why, why can't you just say simpler like that? That's a much more clear-cut case of a chai bahan. Right? I mean, because it's, it's, it's kind of, right, like the only time this seems, to be an, this seems to be a discussion is when it's a risk, you have to play the odds, you're not sure, right? But a chai bahan seems to overrule um, saving someone else's life, right, if it's, if it's clear-cut, right? Right, because the, 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 this like whole, this whole piece of Ramosha is based on Rashi regarding the mitzvah of Chai right. And the way Rashi seems to explain the whole idea is that the Torah, the Torah cherishes your life more than the mitzvah of Shabbos. Right? The, the, the Torah cherishes your life more than fasting on Yom Kippur. So don't risk your life for this mitzvah. I could potentially risk my life to save his life, but if I'm giving my life to save his life, so then what right do I have to do that? I can't determine whose life is more valuable. No, so the answer, when you have numbers like that, the post can say, you're not mechuyiv to do so, but it is a midas chasidus. If you jump on that grenade to save the masses, that's a midas chasidus. Yeah. You're allowed to do it? Yeah. <coughs> yes. What about the issue? Well, when it comes to saving more lives, then we'd for sure say it's a midas chasidus. If, if by me giving my life, I could save others. At what point does it become more? It's two, three. That's a whole discussion. It's a whole discussion. But at least we have Ramosha telling us that one is allowed to risk his life to save someone else's life. But you're not obligated to do so. Let's take a look at one more chuva here of the Minchas Asher. This is regarding a very interesting case of a young lady who was on the registry and she gets a call that you're a match. Now the way this works, I've gotten those calls before also. And the first time I got the call, I was so excited. Wow! I get to save someone's life, it's unbelievable. But oftentimes, you know, through more research, they might find a better match, or if you go to stage two, they'll see that you're not actually 100%. But a young lady gets a call saying that she's a match to save someone's life. And uh, she'll know more in a few weeks. In the, the Minchas Asher is Rav Asher Weiss. He's one of the, the top poskim right now in Eretz Yisrael, really in the world. He's the head posik of Sharei Tzedek Hospital in Eretz Yisrael. So a lot of these medical questions go his way. So the problem was, she, uh, she was trying to have a child. And if she conceives, then she can no longer donate bone marrow. They won't accept bone marrow from her if she's pregnant. And you, you, can't, you can't push it off nine months. If there's a need, there's a need right now. So the question that was posed to Rabbi Weiss, do I have to wait? 
Do I have to push off getting pregnant in order to potentially be the match for this person? Or do I say, listen, Kavel Hashem, you know, the, the, the job of a young couple is to try to have children. There's a mitzvah puravu, and we'll, we'll go, Kederach HaOlam, and if Hashem wants it to happen, it will, and if Hashem doesn't want it to happen, it won't, and that's it. That was the question. So he says in the second paragraph, Av she'ein vadoz gemura, it's not 100% clear that the recipient, because they don't tell you who it is, obviously. It's not 100% clear that the recipient is a Yehudi. However, it's more than 95% that that's the case. If you're a match, at least 95% means he's a Yehudi. Yesh Litzayin. Even though she is a match, listen, there could be other matches, potentially. And it could be after more exploration, they're going to find a better match. But she doesn't know any of this at this stage. At this stage, it might turn out that she's the only match and they need her to save a life. While she's pregnant, she cannot donate the marrow. Is she obligated to prevent getting pregnant for this suffolk? Maybe we would not view this as a classic case of pikuach nefesh, and she would be allowed to continue life as normal and conceive. And if you'll say that she's not obligated to push off getting pregnant, you can still ask, but is it the nice thing? Is it the right thing to do? Hold off a few weeks and see what happens. Or maybe you'll say, no, if there's no chiv to do so, then don't push off the mitzvah, puravu. Interesting question. So he starts off by quoting the Noda B'Yehuda. The Noda B'Yehuda has a famous tshuva, and this is the Cheskolanda in the 1700s, where he says regarding the issue of Nivul Hames, of doing an autopsy, are you allowed to donate your body to science or to medical research? And in that tshuva of another Behuda, he says, absolutely not. It's Nivul Hames, it's a disgrace to the dead body. I, you'll argue, through the, the medical research and finding out more about how human beings work, we could potentially save lives in the future. To that, he says, that's not called pikuach nefesh. Pikuach nefesh has to be, there's a clear and present danger, and that by doing an autopsy, somehow this could help us with clear and present pikuach nefesh. The idea of Shema, maybe in the future, that's not pikuach nefesh, and therefore there's no heter for autopsy. I give you an example when there's a mitzvah for autopsy. As a friend of the family, and they have a very rare heart disease. It's genetic, and often it doesn't come up until much later in life, 30s, 40s, 50s. Um, 
this one person's sister and brother both died from the same issue. Question is, were they allowed to do an autopsy after death to find out more about this disease and what we could do to prevent it? And the one remaining sibling, so as of now she was healthy, but she's, Jeff, she's genetically in danger, so the answer is, of course, it's a mitzvah an autopsy. That's pikuach nefesh. But just giving one's body to the medical school students to, to laugh at how you look when you're dead, that we wouldn't do. Is that apply to Jews? Is that to apply do what? Does that apply to a non-Jew? Nivel Hamez? Yeah. Nivel Hamez. Is at least Midirabadan applies. That's a broader, broader sugi. Maybe we'll hold off on that for the organ donation discussion. But here, here's, here's the, the Yisod. He quotes in the, one of the letters of the Chazanish. He says, although the Noda Yehuda writes that donating one's body to science is not considered pikuach nefesh for some potential Hatzalah down the road, he says, the Ein Tzarech Davka Chola Bifaneinu. It doesn't have to be someone who's sick in the same hospital. As long as this could somehow lead to a real refuah, it's not Shema maybe down the road, but this understanding of the body or of this disease can help cure people who are presently sick, even if they're not right here. That's not called Shema. That's not, that's not a refuah rechoka. That's considered a real, clear, and present danger, and for that, says the Chazanish, an autopsy would be permissible. It is very cloudy, and hence we always have to analyze each case individually. But there are cases where that would be mutter and probably a mitzvah. Comes along with Usher Weiss, and he says, didan, wanting to make the application from that discussion to this discussion. So, this young lady might be in Eretz Yisrael and her husband's learning in the mirror and they're 21, 22 years old and the chola is somewhere in Arizona. But says Rav Asherweiz, that's considered a chola bifaneinu mamish. The sick person's right here. We know exactly who's in need of this hamardani, And in our modern world, doesn't make a difference if they're across the world. Everything is bifanenu. If she decides to donate bone marrow, she'll save the guy's life in Arizona. So concludes with Rosh Weiss. He says, I'm I don't know if we could tell her you're chai if you're obligated to not get pregnant, to wait and see if you're really the match. Because ultimately, the Kama Vakama Svekos Yeshadayim, there are many, many Svekos. Perhaps they're going to find a better match and they won't need her. And perhaps the Chola will become more severe and it will no longer be needed either. They'll miss that window of opportunity. However, to that, he says, we have to assume that the Chola has potential to keep on living. But we had the other question of, do we know he's a Yehudi? But we'd go with Rov. 95% says it is. 
But even if you'll tell me there are many svekas, generally we say, even a svek sveka, far off doubt when it comes to human life, that pushes aside any iser of the Torah. And therefore, if Usher Weiss concludes, Nira de Mutter, it appears that it's Mutter for her to push off getting pregnant. And that would definitely be the appropriate thing to do, to wait off and see if she's really needed to save this person's life. I remember there was a guy in Yeshiva where he told me that he got a call from the registry saying that he was an exact match and he was the only exact match this person had. So basically this guy's life or this woman's life was in his hands. And this is after I went through my episode with Avraham. So I was thinking to myself, what an amazing schos. What an amazing opportunity to be matzal nefesh. And he said, but my mother really doesn't want me to do it. She feels very awkward about the whole thing. It makes her nervous. So I just continued listening. And he said, and we sent the question through different channels to Rebel Yoshev. And he passed him that, that you're not mechuyiv. You don't have to do it. And that psak is not surprising. Based on this background, we would say anytime you're endangering yourself a little bit, you're not mechuyev to do so, but it's definitely the right thing to do. It's a midas chasidus. Now it happens to be I had a conversation with Rav Asher Weiss, and in contrast to what he writes in the tshuva, at least bizman hazeh, where it's very, very low odds of any, anything happening, Rav Asher Weiss paskins, there's a chiv to donate bone marrow at least as of last year. That was his new psaq. So, ultimately, after going through the whole discussion, is there an obligation to donate bone marrow? The answer is, yes! If you're the match, you have to be matzil nefesh. Is there room to say, maybe not, not 100% chiyuv, midas chasidus? There's room for that. Is there a chiyuv to, uh, I know I asked earlier, to register, but I think to register our children, to register children do this well often as well? That, that. Might as well. Can't hurt. Can't hurt. Now listen, it, it could depend on the situation. If you have a four-year-old child who happens to be a match for a, a grown male, and therefore they require more, more bone marrow, so then you have to analyze that, that that's a safe procedure, and you have to ask the, the experts. But the idea of, of being on the registry is a chiyuv gomor, and if one is the match, then the Pashim Shad is there's a Chiyuv, or at least there's a Midas Chasidus, which means if you ask Hashem, what should I do? Hashem would probably say, donate the bone marrow.